Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. <clears throat> So, can be kind of a ride, huh? How many worlds did you visit today in your heart and mind? How many ups and how many downs? I don't like roller coasters, but for some reason I, I love this practice, <laughs> even though it can feel like that sometimes. You get spun around and you're climbing and it feels great and then all of a sudden your stomach drops. When we do a <clears throat> mindfulness practice, we bring our attention to something simple like the breath and all sorts of other things show up. The mind's distracted. It's like anything but the breath comes into our awareness. And oftentimes with loving kindness practice, it can feel like we come with that intention to cultivate kindness, to stick with the phrases, and it's like everything <laughs> except kindness comes up. Have you noticed this? One person said in a group today, I was doing pretty well until I started doing all metta. <laughs> one, of, uh, one of the teachers here tells a story about one of her early metta retreats doing walking in the parking lot and saying, I hate metta, I hate metta. <laughs> it's not all joy and lightness. This practice is really powerful. You know, we come to a, a space like this, a setting like this, and we put aside so much uh, that's with us in our life, our relationships, our friends, our hobbies, our work, uh, our routines, our homes, our devices, all of these things that are so much a part of us. And just that alone is a lot. It can be challenging. And then you add to that the silence. And then you add to that the practice of strengthening awareness. The mind becomes quiet, it settles, the heart starts to open a little bit. And guess what? <laughs> all of the things that we've been pushing away all of the things that we haven't wanted to take the time to feel, to listen to, to look at, they come knocking, right? Sometimes a heart can feel so tangled and constricted and knotted. I like the translation Sharon uses for metta as connection. And sometimes it seems like instead there's this profound disconnection that we feel. But actually it's important to understand that that's part of the practice. That it's through feeling disconnected 
that we come to know and understand and find what true connection is. It's through feeling everything that's not metta that we really come to recognize and appreciate goodwill, benevolence, kindness in and of itself. So some of this, these, these other forces that come up and the ways we get spun around, part of, part of working with them is understanding, is having a context or a frame for that. So if you're, let's say, traveling over land, the way people used to, and you're trying to get to the sea, and you're going a long distance, and you get to this big range of mountains, you might get kind of disappointed, confused, freaked out. Why are there mountains? I'm trying to go to the sea. But if someone told you before you left on your journey, in order to get to the sea, you need to cross a great range of mountains, then when you get to that range of mountains, you go, oh, great, here we are at the mountains. So in the same way, we can come to this practice of loving kindness, expecting that that's what we're going to experience. And even though we hear it again and again, it doesn't matter what you experience, it's your relationship. When hatred comes up, when pain comes up, when confusion comes up, when doubt comes up, when craving comes up, we can think, what's gone wrong? How come this is happening? I was going to the sea. Why are there mountains? But when we actually understand, oh no, that's part of it. That's actually part of how we learn kindness is through encountering these difficult states and learning to bring tenderness to them that strengthens kindness. Then when they come up, we might remember, oh yeah, right, here we go. So I want to talk some about the ways that we get spun around tonight. Metta practice is sometimes even referred to as a purification practice. It's like there can be one moment of real kindness, of real goodwill, just very simple. And then that's like, it's like it opens the heart to all of these other places inside. And we start to reveal, we start to see more clearly its opposite or the, or the, or the places where it's not quite really fully metta. So we learn to be balanced by losing balance, right? How could it be otherwise? We learn what well-being is by experiencing suffering. How could we recognize well-being if we didn't know suffering? And we learn metta by experiencing what's not metta. How could it be otherwise? So the Buddha often compared this practice to crossing a great ocean or crossing a flood. He said it's like going against the stream. And if you've ever been out on the water, you know that it takes training, it takes skill to learn to navigate the currents. When I was a teenager and uh, in my early 20s, I spent a lot of time canoeing canoeing on rivers. And uh, you have to know how to work with the currents. You have to know how to read the river. 
You have to know how to angle the boat correctly if you're trying to cross a river or go upstream. You have to know uh, when to speed up, when to shoot a set of rapids, when to go along the shore. You need to know when a, a set of rapids is too turbulent and to actually take your boat out of the water. And then you need to know how to portage, how to carry your boat around. So all of these tools that we learn and the practice is very much like that. When you run a river, you understand that the rapids and the waves and the tumults, even going around them, that none of that's a mistake, that it's not a problem, that it's part of paddling. And so in the same way, all of these currents in the mind, they're not mistakes and they don't need to be a problem. They're just part of the path. So the Buddha gave, um, in his great compassion, he gave us a map for handling these currents, these forces in the mind. He said there are five particular forces that we need to pay attention to. These are called the five hindrances. And there are only five. It's good news. <laughs> Could be a lot more. And you could simplify it even further. You can say that there's actually just two pairs and then a fifth. So there's the first pair, which is about liking and not liking, craving and aversion, our basic response to pleasure and pain. Then the second pair is about our energy, sleepiness, sloth and torpor on the one hand, not enough physical or mental energy, and restlessness, too much energy in the mind or the body. So this imbalance in energy. And then the fifth is doubt. So what I want to do is I want to talk about each of these and offer some tools for how to work with them in our practice. These are what make the practice difficult. They're said to be like obstacles or obscurations because they block discernment. They can overwhelm our awareness. And they can cause really great harm, as you probably well know from being here, that when we get caught in one of these eddies or one of these whirlpools, it can really spin us around and spit us out. And it's not just here on retreat, at home too, in our life. These forces of greed and aversion and laziness, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, confusion... These are the same forces in our life that complicate things, that entangle us, that create difficulties for ourselves and others, that make it hard even to focus on getting a project done. So this, one of the phrases we use, may I be safe, one of the full phrases is, may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. What does it mean to be safe and protected from inner harm? To be protected from these forces, to learn and understand how to work with them skillfully. And when these forces are at bay in the mind, ah, oh, what a relief. It feels great, even if just temporarily they subside some. So I'm going to share um, a fair amount with you tonight about how to work with these and I just want to say, don't feel like you need to get everything. Just listen and 
trust that the pieces that are relevant or meaningful for you will stay. So the first of these forces is greed, wanting. And this is our habitual response to feeling pleasure, right? And in some sense, this is adaptive. This is part of how we're wired evolutionarily. We like sweet, fatty foods because on the savanna, when we didn't have supermarkets, anything that had a lot of sugar and fat in it, we would eat a lot of because we didn't know when the next meal would be. So our, you know, our craving for pleasure is hardwired into us. And in some sense, it's adaptive. But what we mean by, by craving, sense, desire, is, is when this becomes, it drives us, when it becomes obsessive in some way. And there's the whole range that can show up in our practice in our life from, you know, just kind of like a mild hankering, a little yen for something, to like full-blown greed or lust. And it shows up in a lot of ways, you know, wanting nice things, thinking about a new phone, or just thinking about your phone that you don't have, wanting to have nice experiences, you know, Cravings, the the voice that says, I want to be more comfortable. It's too hot. Now it's too cold. Soup for dinner again? (laughs) I want something sweet. Why don't they have anything sweet out? Maybe I'll have a cup of tea. No, I'll take a shower. That'll make me feel nice. It's this kind of endless searching for something pleasant to fill us up. So it's also said in in the suttas that there's no river like the river of craving. On retreat, things can get kind of wacky. Have you noticed this? Like our, we can get really obsessive and focused on things that ordinarily either wouldn't bother us or we wouldn't care about at all. Like getting our our cup of tea or coffee just right. Or checking the board. How many times you check the notice board today, right? It's craving. It's wanting a little stimulation, wanting something, wanting something, right? Sometimes it can show up as just checking out, just launching off, fantasizing about something pleasant. Either through force of habit or through wanting to get away from something unpleasant, mental, emotional, or even physical. I uh, I did some practice in Japan when I was in my early 20s and I sat um, a seshin, zazen. And in seshin, uh, the schedule's very rigorous. You wake up at 3.30 in the morning (laughs) and the sittings are 50 minutes with a five-minute break for walking and then 50 minutes. And so my body was in so much pain. And after the first day or two, I discovered that it was so pleasant to think about what I'd be doing when I got back to the United States. And seeing my girlfriend again. And I spent five or six days fantasizing. Just going off, checking out. It was very instructive for me to see that, that process. And then at the end of the retreat to go, oh my gosh, I just wasted five days <laughs> thinking because I didn't want to be here. There's a cartoonist by the name of Ashley Brilliant, 
who used to have these little post postcards called pot shots. He has one that says, uh, I've given up my search for truth and now I'm looking for a good fantasy. <laughs> you might find yourself feeling like that sometimes. So this craving can also show up as um, wanting comfort, the comfort of what's familiar, feeling homesick. Uh, In metta practice, it often shows up as craving for pleasant meditative experiences, you know, wanting that pure, radiant love or that very sweet, tender feeling I felt last time. So we can find ourselves longing for that. It also also shows up as what we call attachment, which is that conditional love, that sense of I'll love you if, right? We're offering the phrases wanting something back, like, you know, may you find a new job. (laughs) (laughs) May you be happy so I don't have to hear you complaining so much. Or it even gets more subtle, you know, may you, may you be healthy because then you'll be around more. There's that sense of the, how the self gets in there, what I want rather than just the freely offered. And this is what's called the near enemy of metta. It's like a near miss. It's not quite metta. So I heard a question this afternoon, like how do I keep the metta from becoming or from turning into this. So again, there's that sense of, it's not a mistake, it's not a problem, it's just part of the practice, it's part of the path. We learn metta by seeing how it gets off course. So that sense of attachment will come up. It's supposed to. And when we notice it, That's how we start to refine our understanding of what metta is. You don't have to make it go away. It's just a force in the river, so you work with it. You learn how to angle your boat to go around it, to go through it. So this uh, attachment, I just want to say, this is different from the kind of healthy psychological attachment in terms of bonding and forming close ties relationally. What we're referring to is that sense of, I'll love you if, that conditional uh, relationship. So I also just want to acknowledge, you know, this force of craving, our whole economy, right, is built on this. There's a whole industry that's designed to convince us that we need things to be happy. It's building on that. And so then that's kind of in our mind stream. There are many vivid analogies in the suttas for describing this force of craving uh, and for the hindrance of sense desire. Uh, it's talked about as a whirlpool that sucks, sucks us down or uh, like a bucket with a hole in it. Every time you fill it up, it just empties. And the other analogy that's used is it's like being in debt, but it's a debt that's never paid off. The more you pay it, the, the larger it grows, like one of those balloon mortgages. So how do we handle this? How do we handle this force in meditation? So the first step with any of these hindrances, with any of these currents in the mind, the first step is always just to notice it and to try to see it as it is. 
to notice it with that sense of it's not a mistake. It doesn't need to be a problem. This is just part of the path. So until we notice it, obviously, there's nothing we can do about it. We have no choice. So part of learning to work with these is learning how to recognize these forces. Like when you run a river, you need to learn how to recognize where the obstacles are. The rocks don't always stick up out of the river. Sometimes they're just below the surface. But if there's a rock there, the water will will flow over it differently. There'll be a little ripple in the water that you can see. So it's the same with the hindrances. When one of these is present, there's going to be a disturbance in the mind that we can learn to sense, that we can learn to feel. That it'll alert us to its presence. So it's said that craving is harder to spot than some of the other ones. It's like a, like a pond of water that's filled with beautiful dyes. Because there's that glow factor to craving, right? When I get home, I'll do this. I'll get into my garden or I'll vacuum the living room, whatever your thing is, right? <laughs> There's that, that hint of anticipation that this is really going to make me happy. So it's harder to spot because there's a part that feels good. But if you look in your body, there's often a little bit of a tension, kind of a leaning forward, maybe kind of a buzzy feeling, that excitement that's there. So this is the first thing, just noticing it with any of the hindrances, noticing them. Then in metta practice, the first the next choice is always metta or mindfulness. And the first instruction is if it's possible, once you notice it, to just let it be. Just put it down and bring your attention back to kindness. Bring your attention back to the phrases, to the form of the practice. Sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes it's too strong, it's too persistent. And so we might need to apply the tools of mindfulness to work with it. So there's lots of antidotes and skillful means to work with these hindrances. The first general one is to just be with it, feel it, and investigate it. So if you want to learn to swim, you've got to get wet. If you want to learn to work with these forces, we've got to feel them. We actually have to be with them to some degree and start to understand them more. So this is what Sharon was talking about earlier, this balance of not pushing it away, but not getting too entangled with it or trying to make something happen. That ability to just observe, that's, that's part of mindfulness. So feeling it in our body. So with craving, noticing, how's it actually feel to want something we don't have? And really look at that. What's that experience like? Notice the thoughts in the mind. Notice the sensations in the body. If there's wanting, if there's craving, it's for something pleasant. So we can look. What's the pleasant thing that's hypnotizing me? Where's that promise of pleasure coming from? When we can see one of these hindrances clearly, it allows us to put it down, to not be pulled along by it or pushed around by it. So with craving, another powerful tool is to reflect on its limits and its dangers. To really get curious and say, is this really going to do it for me? How many pleasant experiences have we had? You know, Has any of them ever really done it for us in some lasting way? Yeah, they feel good, 
But then what happens? We need another one, right? That's that debt. That's that bucket with a hole in it. It's always running out. So craving robs us of our presence. It, it, it puts our happiness in the future. The, the, the delusion, the belief of craving is that I'll be happy when. So our well-being is always in the future. And we can spend our whole life waiting. Right? That Henry James story. What's the, what's the name of it, that, uh, that one? No one's read it. Okay. The Beast in the Jungle. Thank you. If you haven't read it, great story. It's about a man who spends his whole life waiting for something to happen. Craving gives rise to really painful states of jealousy and envy, even violence, right? You see, we see the effects of craving, of unchecked greed in the world, the devastation to the planet, to relationships. So it's a very powerful, dangerous force. So to reflect on that and to see it when it's present and say, ooh, this is, this is sticky stuff, this is powerful. Have some respect for it. When we let go of craving, when we put it down, we think that we're giving up that thing that we want, but actually what we're giving up is the sense of dissatisfaction. It's that sense of lack in the heart that we let go of. So it's said that freedom from sense desire, from the hindrance of sense desire, it's like paying off the loan, freedom from debt. So the next hindrance is uh, ill will. So this is the far enemy, the opposite of metta. And this is generally easier to spot because it feels awful. Hatred, ill will, anger, even its milder forms, irritation, frustration, annoyance. These, these don't feel good. And so they're easier to, uh, to, to know when it's present. Sometimes it can even show up as anger towards the body, reaction to unpleasant physical sensations, uh, fault finding, always finding what's wrong, kind of aversion. And again, that, that way that we can get a little bit out of balance on retreat because of the intensity of the container. You know, it's like standing in line for the meal and all of a sudden you realize you're seething with hatred for the person in front of you for no reason than like, the way they walk or something, right? And it's like, what's wrong with me? You know, I was fine until I started practicing metta. We need, we need to see these forces really clearly in the mind to understand their power, their danger, their harm. What do you think, what do you think allows us in our life to have the presence of mind and the restraint when we want to blast someone to go, oh, okay, slow down. This is, this is not where I want to go. It's those very moments on retreat of feeling like enraged and learning to feel it and see it and bear with it and try to bring some kindness to it. That's really skillful training. 
Like if you're doing strength training and you only lift a two pound weight, your muscles aren't gonna grow. It needs some resistance for the muscles to grow. It's the same with the heart. It's through these difficulties and these challenges that, that, that mindfulness and loving kindness really strengthen. And that carries over into our life. So the story, the belief behind aversion is that we could somehow eliminate pain, that we could somehow eliminate the unpleasant things through anger, through resistance, through trying to make it go away. Sometimes this aversion shows up in subtle ways. It can show up as projecting ill will or hostility out into the environment. They all hate me. They don't like me. God, why does that person hate me so much? That's ill will. It's projected ill will turned back towards oneself. Or one of the most common ways, as Mark was talking about last night, is this inner critic. How that, that aversion, that ill will, gets turned towards ourself. Not good enough. Failure. Never going to make it. Can't do it. Sometimes even in the phrases, one person was talking about the fra- you know, hearing phrases. May I have good posture? May I be a better meditator? And it's coming as this little bit of laced with a little bit of ill will. I remember my first loving kindness retreat was here with Sharon and a few other colleagues of hers. I was sitting kind of over there. The first night, hearing the instructions told to offer phrases of loving kindness for myself. And I was, I had just come off of a, a, a job where I was managing some, something and um, it was really difficult. And uh, the people I was working with didn't like me very much and uh, kind of just a lot of negativity coming towards me. And I, was, I left feeling pretty kind of shaken and doubting myself a lot. And uh, I remember after that, that, after the talk that night, um, grabbing one of the teachers, I was going to leave a note and she happened to be out there. And I just kind of said, hey, can I speak to you from going upstairs and just crying, just feeling like, is it really okay to offer these phrases for myself? I feel so worthless, like there's something wrong with me. Is it really okay? We can be so cruel to ourselves and say things to ourselves we'd never say to someone else put pressure on ourselves we'd never put on someone else so this um, force of ill will and hatred also shows up as fear it's two sides of the same coin the ill will is a reaction towards the unpleasant of aggression fear is a reaction towards the unpleasant of pulling away. Oh no, take me away from here. And again, I want to acknowledge that these forces, these responses are hardwired, they're adaptive, right? That anger is there to protect us, to help us feel strong. Fear is there to help us to get away from threats, from danger. But oftentimes it's out of context. There's actually no real threat or the anger is out of proportion. The analogies in the texts for for anger, again, are very vivid. It's like picking up a hot coal to throw it at someone. Who gets hurt first? 
Or it's like a, the hindrance of ill will is like a pond that's boiling. You can't see through that pond. Just like craving, there's colored dyes and you can't see in the water. With ill will, it's boiling and roiling. Or this one I really like, it's like being sick with a disease. That when this force is present in our, in our mind, it's actually like an illness, this hatred, this aversion towards ourselves, towards others. So the good news here is that loving kindness is the antidote to ill will, to fear. The Buddha taught loving kindness initially to his monks when they were afraid meditating in the forest. So if ill will comes up, say towards someone else, this might not mean doing metta for that person necessarily, or for the situation that you're angry at, you can change the recipient. Come back to the benefactor or back to yourself. But that sense of it's the, it's the heart of kindness that can heal and dissolve that ill will, that can settle the, the boiling in the heart. So when you're doing metta, this, this force of anger, hatred comes up, you can also, you can work with like the tone of your voice internally. Trying to incline the mind back towards kindness in some way. If it's too strong, coming back to mindfulness, trying to be with it in a balanced way. So feeling it in your body. Noticing the thoughts and the images and the stories. How's it put together? Where's the unpleasantness that we're reacting to? If it's really strong, don't go into it all the way. Right? Just, just touch it for a moment and then back off. Sometimes if it's really strong, we might need to do something else entirely, like taking the boat out of the water and going around a set of, uh, you know, a waterfall or turbulent waters. So have a cup of tea or take a walk till things settle. The the forest and the and sort of the birds and the trees is a wonderful resource for our practice. Just go look at the trees, you know. They're not judging anyone. You know, you don't need to be anything for a tree. <laughs> They're just breathing. Listen to the birds. So, you know, allowing that to soothe the heart, letting, letting it in some can, can be a, an antidote for the force of hatred or ill will. So these first two, craving and aversion, this reactivity to pleasant and unpleasant, the push and the pull in the heart. So the next two are about energy, learning to modulate and balance our energy. So sloth and torpor, this heaviness or sleepiness, it's a lack of energy showing up as physical tiredness. Um, we've talked about you know, the phrases getting muddled and funny, all sorts of weird things happening when, we, when, when our mind starts sinking with this lack of energy. This is it's said to be like being in prison or like a pond that's overgrown with weeds and choked with, with algae. Again, you can't see, there's no clarity. So once again, when we notice this heaviness or this tiredness, remembering it's not a mistake. It's not a problem, it's just part of the path. 
just learning to work with these energies. And there's all of the many physical ways that we've talked about working with sleepiness, opening the eyes, you can pull your earlobes, bring more awareness to the posture or the in-breath, stand up, do some walking, splash some water on your face. Sometimes just needing to rest. You know how tired we are. I don't really have time to read you this quote, but I'm going to because it's so great. So this is from a cartoon by uh, an Australian cartoonist, Michael Lunig. Um, has this series called The Adventures of Vasco Pajama, this explorer who writes letters to his friend, Mr. Curly. So he writes Mr. Curly, and Mr. Curly writes him back and says, Dear Vasco, what is worth doing and what is worth having, you ask? I would like to say simply this. It is worth doing nothing and having a rest. In spite of all the difficulty it may cause you, you must rest. Otherwise, you will become restless. I believe the world is sick with exhaustion and dying of restlessness. The prolonged ongoing state of fatigue to which our world seems to be rapidly adopting is ultimately soul-destroying as well as earth-destroying. Tiredness has become the most suppressed feeling in the world. Everywhere we see people overcoming their exhaustion, pushing on with intensity, and being congratulated for overcoming it and pushing it deep down inside themselves as if it were a virtue to do this. Yet tiredness is one of our strongest, most noble and instructive feelings. When you are tired, you must act upon it sensibly. You must rest like the trees and the animals do. So I gently urge you, Vasco, do as we do in curly flat. Learn to curl up and rest. I repeat, it's worth doing nothing and having a rest. So does this mean I'm encouraging you to go back to your room and sleep during all of the walking periods? <laughs> Not exactly. But to have respect for our bodies and for, and for their need for rest. This practice is meant to be restful. One of the ways we talk about using the phrases is resting the attention. Resting the attention with the phrases lightly. So if we're getting tired, sometimes we might look, are we trying too hard? Are we pushing? You know, where's that exhaustion coming from? If it's this residual exhaustion from our life, can we bring more ease into the practice? So there are ways to bring more energy also when there's this heaviness. You know, we can sharpen any one of the, these three components of the metafractic practice, bringing more energy to the phrase, maybe saying the person's name, bringing more energy to the meaning or the intention, getting creative with our imagination to make it more alive, or trying to sharpen the sense of the recipient, the, the, the sense of being with the person to bring more aliveness. So this, this sloth and torpor also has a, um, a mental aspect. It's not just physical. And that mental aspect is that sense of apathy or lethargy. I don't care. Oh, just forget about it. That, that lack of will. 
sometimes even even despair, like just sinking, sinking down, everything's too heavy. And in these places, what's really needed is that kindness. And maybe not even the phrases, but just coming back to the spirit of metta. Just that sense of tenderness. That phrase that Sharon used about the cover of her book, one of the proposed covers. That looks like a world that needs a lot of love. Uh, We come to these places in our heart that are just so desolate. And so to just see, like, can I just find that thread of kindness, however it's there for you? I know for me, one of my, one of those sources for me was my, uh, my dad's mom, my grandma. Uh, my dad was born in Israel, and uh, he grew up there very poor. His, uh, his father built the house that they lived in, made the cinder blocks from straw and cement, and uh, his mom, they, were, they moved to Israel, it was still Palestine, it was still a colony of Britain. And um, his, uh, his mom was a very brilliant woman, but she grew up in a time where there wasn't actually much space for her to get educated or have a career, so she you know, raised the children and took care of the household. Um, she's very mischievous, she had the sparkle in her eye. And so we didn't speak the same language because I never learned Hebrew. But we would spend time together and we would play cards. And I would teach her to play like go fish or war, just simple card games. And I remember her hands. She had these short kind of short fingers, but very strong hands because she worked with her hands a lot. And they were very wrinkled, but this kind of very sort of like soft, plump wrinkles in her hands. And I can just remember just, just touching her hands as a little boy. She, we, were, we were very affectionate with each other. She would caress me and you know, I would hold her hands. And so sometimes in my practice, just that sense of, of uh, Safta's hands, I'd call her Safta, which means grandma in Hebrew, just brings me right back to that feeling of kindness and warmth and tenderness. So, you know, as you're out there, as you're running the river and as you're getting tossed around in the rapids, you know, sometimes we can't find the phrases, but to just find that thread of kindness for that, that world that needs a lot of love in us. So the opposite of this force is the restlessness, too much energy, feeling like, like anywhere but right here, like we're going to jump out of our skin, like... When are they going to ring that bell? If they're going to ring that bell. You know that one? (laughs) We all know that one, right? Looking at the watch. Looking at the watch again. It's only been one minute? (laughs) Maybe my watch is broken. Their clock must be broken. Their clock's broken. I know it's broken. So restlessness, this physical agitation, it can be quite painful. Even even in the muscles, it can feel, feel really intense. So it can also show up mentally, restlessness and worry or agitation, this endless planning or anxiety, to-do lists. Um, It's sometimes connected to the sort of social pressure to become something or that the myth of being perfect, that somehow if we just get more done, we'll be accepted or we'll be okay. All of this shows up as this restless energy in our practice. 
And this kind of incessant doing or this restlessness, it robs us of our capacity to be really here. It robs us of intimacy with ourselves, with others. So the spotting this restlessness, sometimes it's really obvious. Sometimes it's just that sense of the mind being scattered or driven or a little jumpy or things getting really narrow and fixated. And this is like I said, it's like a pond that's disturbed on the surface, like wind on the top or like being enslaved. Very strong analogies for this energy of restlessness. And the belief the, the sort of trick of restlessness is that, uh, you know, if I think about this enough, the, the planning, then I'll be able to control it. Or if I just do a little more, then it'll be done. Have you noticed the to-do list never ends, no matter how fast you go, right? There's a Tibetan teaching that I love that says, activities do not cease by completing them. They cease when you stop. Very instructive. So again, the first step is just noticing this energy and recognizing, remembering this is not a mistake. It's not a problem. It's just part of the path. This is just the way the water moves in the river sometimes. So this is an imbalance in energy. So um, trying too hard can tire us. And sometimes trying too hard can amp us up. So it's this readjusting, coming back to the simplicity of the practice. Sharon referred to this right aim. So just one phrase, just one moment. Sometimes changing the pace of the phrases or leaving a little bit more space, a little bit more of a pause between the phrases. You can even... You know, let yourself try to rest into the intention or just one word, you know, happy, safe, healthy. Sometimes that can start to calm the sense of agitation and restlessness. If it's too strong, you can't stay with the metta, then using mindfulness. So trying to be with the energy or sometimes widening. So this restless energy, things feel pent up mentally, physically. So getting really big. So noticing sounds or noticing the space in the room or even the space outside the room, going outside, connecting with the sky, just giving that, that energy, that tumult, a really big space to move around in. And it'll quiet down on its own. You might even, you know... Just try to recall a very peaceful, calm place from your life, some place where you feel at ease, and just to bring that energy of, of calm back in. So the last of the hindrances. Dun dun dun, dun. doubt. Very tricky. Skeptical doubt. This flipping in the mind. Is it this? Is it that? It might be this, but it could be that. I'm not sure. Which one? The mind can argue any side, never settling, always turning. Could be doubt about something in your life 
Or it could be doubt about what's happening here. It could be doubt about us. Who are these teachers? Who do they think they're? What do they know? They don't know anything. What are your credentials? We doubt about the practice. Why did I come here? What is this, some kind of daily affirmations? Am I trying to brainwash myself? <laughs> Maybe this is a cult. Oh God, what have I gotten myself into this time? Wait, should I stay with the benefactor or the friend? Maybe I should go back to myself. Be happy or feel happy? Maybe it's feel, is it feel happy? This is doubt. Just this churning, this spinning in the mind. Doubt about ourselves, about our own ability to do the practice. I can't do this. I'm doing it all wrong. This can't be right. I know Oren said it's not a mistake, but this is a mistake. Everyone else can do this. I can't do it, not me. I'll never be able to get it. So by your laughter, I'm guessing that you've experienced some of this. (sighs) Doubt can be really dangerous because it can stop us from practicing when it gets really strong. So the analogy is it's like a pond that's all stirred up and muddy. Or the Buddha said doubt is like crossing a desert without supplies. (coughs) Dangerous, never ending. You can get stranded there. The trick, the, the myth of doubt is that we will somehow be able to resolve this through thinking that thought can actually arrive at some final conclusion and it just doesn't do it. Discursive thought will never resolve something. It doesn't do that. It's not its nature. It just keeps going on. But, but the, the, the kind of the, the hook of doubt is that it comes, it said it comes masquerading as wisdom. It sounds so reasonable. So there's a difference between skeptical doubt, the hindrance of doubt, and what they call in Zen the great doubt, which is that sense of interest and curiosity, that not knowing, what is love? I don't know. Let's find out. That's not skeptical doubt. That's not a hindrance. Skeptical doubt is, what is love? I don't know. Does it mean like this? Does it mean like that? Maybe it's this. It's just this this cycling. Sometimes doubt can show up as evaluating our practice. I remember spending time with my first teacher and him saying, you know, asking him, I was asking him, Manindraji, am I on the path? How am I doing? And he would say, you take one step and then you stop checking. Did I take a step? Did I take a step? Am I walking? Did I take a step? He said, just practice. This can be a really uh, painful force, though, when it's self-doubt. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. This doubt mixed with that ill will. So sometimes the hindrances gang up on us. They come together. I remember one long retreat I sat here, ending up in this place of utter despair and doubt again and again and again and again. Finally started being mindful of it and trying to understand what's going on here. I ended up um, figuring out the formula, which was basically uh, take a strong commitment to awakening, complete faith in the teachings, and add believing the thought, I can't do it, every time, despair. Surefire. So I called it the DET, 
the doubt express train. That thought comes, I can't do it. Once, once I believe that thought, it's only one destination. You get on the DET, that's where it's going to take you. So humor is a very helpful resource with all of the hindrances, having some sense of humor, being able to be light with these things. So Manindraji also told me two other things that are very helpful in working with doubt. One, he said, there's no need to ever have any doubt about the practice or the teachings. So sometimes what's needed is actually certain information to find out, I'm not sure, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And then ask us, leave us a note, ask a question in the hall. There's no need to have any doubt about what you're doing here. The second thing he told me was he said, learn to see doubt as doubt. Easy to say, difficult to do. And that's the same for all of the hindrances. We have to learn to see craving as craving, to see ill will as ill will. They're just forces in the mind. They're not who we are. They're not a mistake. They don't mean anything about our practice or, our, or who we are or how we're doing. So just learn to see it as it is. Will this really help me? What does the research say? Oh, doubt. Wait a minute. But if I label it doubt, how will I ever know if it's helping? That's doubt again. You have to keep seeing it, keep calling it out. So one of the antidotes for doubt is, is the simplicity of one moment of experience. So with metta, just saying one phrase, there's no doubt in just that phrase. It's just what you're doing in that moment. Or with mindfulness, just bringing your attention to your direct sensory experience, feeling the sensations in your hands. That's just what it is. Warmth, pulsing. Feel one breath. There's no doubt in an in-breath. It's just an in-breath. There's no doubt in an out-breath. It's just an out-breath. Learn to see doubt as doubt. So learning to work with these hindrances doesn't just benefit us here on retreat. It benefits us out in our life. The power of learning to handle these forces, these currents in the mind, is that you know how to run the river. And once you know how the water flows, once you understand your own mind here, you understand your own mind everywhere. Any situation, these forces are the same, and working with them are the same. And once you understand the way these forces work in your own mind, then we understand the way they work in everyone's minds because it's just the way the currents go. So when we can see anger clearly in ourself and not take it personally and see the suffering of that and understand that the resolution and the release is through kindness, then when someone else gets angry, what do you think happens? Oh gosh, that's painful. I know that state. That's anger. It's not personal. I want to close with um, a quote or two. This is from uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu Tanjef, who said that good things always take time. The trees with the most solid heartwood are the ones that take the longest to grow. So let's not be in any hurry here. It takes time to learn how to run a river. 
you know. Sometimes you, sometimes your boat tips over. But you need to tip over a few times to learn that when your boat's broadside, you got to lean downstream. And these places, these forces, they're not personal failings, they're teachers. The more we can bring presence to them, mindfulness grows in the face of them. Kindness grows in the face of them. They're like compost for awakening. It's that image of the lotus flower that grows in the mud. What do you think that mud is? It's the hindrances and the defilements, all of these gnarly forces inside. When we learn to meet them rather than run away from them or judge ourselves or, you know, sink in them, we just say, oh, right, this is what it's like to practice. This is what it's like to run a river. These are the forces that come up. Can I be kind? Can I be patient? Can I be aware? When we can do that, it nourishes the practice. Something beautiful grows. Thomas Merton said, when the heart has turned to stone, is when, in the hour that the heart has turned to stone, is when prayer and love are learned. So let's just sit together for a few moments. May you learn to run the river of your mind with great ease, with great ease and tenderness. <clears throat> 